Welcome to The Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Welcome back to The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. It's being brought to you by Advertising Age Magazine. Visit online at adage.com. The Advertising Show is a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production. We know you love to listen to the interviews that we've had over the past 10 years and sometimes re-listen to those interviews, and we think that this week's is uh, no exception to that rule. It's Jay Green, uh, our very special guest from, I guess it was uh, 2009. And, uh, well, all I can say is let's start listening. You'll enjoy it, I guarantee it. As we said, uh, Jay Green is with us out of uh, Seattle, and uh, it's, a, it's a brand new book that Jay has that we're going to talk about, and of course we're going to talk about more. Uh, design is how it works, but, but Jay, it is certainly a pleasure to have you uh, here at the advertising show today. Welcome. Thanks, Ray. I appreciate it. Yeah, Ray and I were talking about your book, uh, Jay, and i got to tell you, business books come either in the form of people within the industry writing their opinion, philosophy, whatever, and then there are journalists like yourself that write about subject matter in the business sector, if you will, and in a lot of cases, journalists sometimes don't really connect well, at least from my perspective, on the topic at hand, yet your book, I might add on portfolio, I thought, and Ray agreed, is an exceptional read. You obviously have done your homework. It's a, it's a great book. I can't recommend it enough to our listeners. And I'd like to ask you, since Ray already mentioned you were former Business Week Seattle Bureau Chief, uh, you've been a writer your entire life. So why is this your first book and why now? <laughs> well, first of all, thanks, Brad, so much for the kind words. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, it's my first book because the opportunity presented itself. I, I, I've been writing about design for a while, and it's a fascinating topic to me. And, uh, you know, I'd written a piece for Business Week uh, about Bang & Olufsen, which is the um, high-end audio equipment maker in Denmark. And I went to Denmark and visited with those guys and talked about their design process. And the uh, good folks at Portfolio, my publisher, uh, emailed me and said, hey, you should be thinking about doing a book about on this topic. And so I did. Good. And what came from that article? What year was that? Did the article appear? Uh, I think it was October 2007, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, what did you learn from that article? Anything exciting in the design world? Yeah, you know, Bang & Olufsen has a fascinating design process. Um, What they've chosen to do is they have designers outside of the company. They don't have designers inside. They contract with, you know, these designers who make these wonderful products for them. I mean, they're beautiful, and they hang you know, in the Museum of Modern Art. I mean, they're, they're terrific-looking uh, products. And they, they have them as outsiders because they don't want them to get involved in the internal politics of the company. They don't want uh, an engineer to sit down and, and, and try and browbeat them over lunch and tell them to tweak their designs just a little bit to make it, you know, a bit easier because they don't want to short-circuit the beauty of the product. Um, and it's an interesting idea, and it's worked for a number of years for Bang & Olufsen. But one of the interesting things is, in the last couple of years, Bang & Olufsen struggled because as much as effort as they put on the sort of fit and finish of the product, they actually don't work all that hard or hadn't worked all that hard on, on how the product works and how consumers experience the product. Uh, and so if, if I learned anything, it's that fit and finish is, is great. Um, it's, it's table stakes. Um, but if you don't have a product that 
meets consumers' needs and, and, and helps uh, develop a great experience for consumers, it ain't going to work. You know, that's interesting. And, and you, you talk about uh, uh, that particular company seeking design outside of its own walls, yet there are many companies where would never consider uh, design input from outside their company walls, yet there are other companies like Lego, for example, that rely heavily on market research. As much as many business gurus might like to gin up a one-size-fits-all strategy when it comes to innovation and so forth, uh, there really isn't one when it comes to design, is there, Jay? Yeah, I think that's exactly right what you're saying. There isn't one. And, and it's one of the toughest things for, for executives to really get their heads around. You know, everybody loves to look at Apple as the sort of design poster child of the day. And, you know, they, they, Apple's strategy has been dissected and pulled apart and reconstituted to try and fit other companies' needs. And the fact is, Apple is as successful as it is because it does things that fit its specific niche. Um, it's, uh, it's led by, you know, a guy who cares deeply about design. It, it has uh, another guy, Jonathan Ive, who um, is the head of, designer, uh, of design at the company who is brilliant. Uh, it has a sort of uh, the market niche of uh, being a, a tech company going up against a couple other big tech companies that have sort of shied away from design. Um, and so what Apple does is great for Apple, but the fact is there are a lot of other companies that I write about in this book that take entirely different approaches and are very successful as well. You know, it seems like the automotive industry has been a, a sufferer of a lack of uh, connecting uh, design into a product that may work, and I think that has hurt, uh, uh, you know, the American brands like General Motors and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. But it seems like the light all of a sudden went on here. And somebody said, we've got to make these cars look uh, like our counterparts that are selling like gangbusters. How important is that in the, uh, the overall scheme of things as it relates to the uh, automotive industry? Well, the automotive, automotive industry is fascinating to me, and I spend a, a chapter looking at Porsche and its design process. And I got to go to Stuttgart and meet with the guys there, and then I went to their uh, test track in Leipzig and got to race a 911 around the track. Sweet. And it, <laughs> you know, it was really fun. But what's interesting about Porsche is they really focus on the experience that people have. And, uh, you know, nothing at Porsche comes by accident. And so if you think about... Um, Porsche, they look beautiful, but they perform extraordinarily well. The sound of the engine is right. The layout of the dashboard is right. The cars do exactly what you want them to do. And so they really focus on the experience. And I'll say they do it a lot better than most of the American car makers. And it's a sad thing for the American auto industry that they haven't been as ingenious as, as their European and, and, and Asian rivals. Um, you know, there's some efforts to try and change that, and some you know American automakers that are doing some interesting things these days. But it's it's a tough slog for them right now. I'd love to get your take on one thing. Uh, there's a there's now a flying car, a legitimate flying car that is going to be marketed. It's called a Terra Fusia or Fusia or however they pronounce it there, and they've tested it. It's actually potentially going to fly at two hundred thousand dollars as a light sport aircraft, and the design of that thing has evolved. A little bit. Are, are you familiar, or have you heard anything about that? It's kind of cool. I, I haven't heard anything about it, but it makes me think of George Jetson. I love it. It's exactly what George Jetson does, and it's a it's a reality. And if you've got ten thousand to plunk down, you can you know reserve yourself one. But uh, but design of the car definitely is cool, and obviously it has to be functional as well too, as you said. Yeah, and I mean, gosh, go down the road. I mean, you start worrying about things like safety and all those other things that uh, y you need to address those points as well. But, you know, power to them. I, you know, I, I suspect there's a market out there. And they have. Brad, go ahead. 
Yeah, yeah, staying with Porsche for a second, uh, you mentioned the left-hand ignition and vertical dashboard. You know, I think everybody recognizes that Porsche certainly has a distinctive design. And as you mentioned in your book, and you just mentioned earlier, nothing of this comes by accident. I think a lot of people, Jay, when they think of great design, they think of the wow factor. Yet in many cases, distinctive design is a lot more subtle than that. Talk about how companies can capitalize on their product nuances, incorporate this in their brand design. Yeah, the, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the points I really want to make, in the, I've made in the book, and I really want to make with you guys and others, is that design isn't that glossy sheen at the end. I mean, that helps, but design is how a product works. So let's talk about a company I write, in the bo- I write about in the book uh, called Cliff Bar. They make energy bars for, for athletes. Now, there's no one who would think of a Cliff Bar product as hanging on the walls of the Museum of Modern Art anytime soon. Right? They aren't particularly attractive products. But what's interesting is that they use the same tools that designers use to create their products. You know, they do ethnographic research on, on their customers. They prototype, and they do sort of rapid prototyping where they try one thing and it doesn't work, and they try another. It's not a fit and finish kind of prototype. It's something that happens very quickly. Uh, and they do all these sorts of things that designers do when they craft a product that you and I might think of as being beautiful, but Cliff Bar does it in a way that makes their customers really crave their products. And, and they come up with novel new products that folks hadn't considered before. And so I'll give you just a really quick example, but one of them is the Luna Bar. And that's Cliff Bar's product that's targeted specifically for women. And you might sit there and think, well, gosh, what's the big difference between an energy bar for a man or a woman? It turns out when Cliff Bar first came out, uh, a number of women chatted with them and said, you know, it, it, it's, it's a great product, but it, it, it has too many calories for me. You know, I'm a smaller person. I don't need as many calories. And Cliff Bar took that and sort of thought about it. How could they come up with a bar that was really specifically targeted towards women? They came up with the Luna Bar. What's interesting is it has lower calories. It also has more folic acid and more iron. And, you know, those are things that women really desire in a product. And the, the Luna Bar has not, only just taken, has not only taken off, it has done so without hurting Cliff Bar at all. It didn't cannibalize sales even a bit. And fascinating, but it, it, it's, it's using design thinking to create a product in a business where you wouldn't necessarily think design actually could play a role. On the advertising show, Jay Green is the author of a brand new book called Design is How It Works, and we'll continue our conversation here in just a moment. Stay right here. You're listening to The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Never borrow money, even please, just when you must well, there's a definite blast from our advertising past, an HFC commercial. My goodness, haven't heard that in a long time. Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth on the advertising show with our very special guest out of uh, Seattle. What a beautiful area of the country it is. Design is how it works. I guess you had some uh, some uh, contribution there, Jay, as well as in the design of your wonderful city, because obviously that's a cool place too, huh? It's a great place to be. It's uh, <laughs> inspirational. There you go. You know, I think uh, when you when we think of great design, we think of like the iPod and Apple did a great job in launching that product. You mentioned Porsche last segment, uh, another great uh, innovative product that has a, a wonderful brand and a beautiful design, but yet a product that was also marketed extensively. Talk a little bit about the role that design plays in marketing. And, of course, you guess we all have to keep in mind nothing will kill a poor product quicker than great advertising. So the question is, can great design, Jay, replace the need for effective marketing? Well, 
I think they, they work hand-in-hand, hand. so replace may be too strong, but certainly companies that do great design use that design to help market the product. So let's use an example here. Another company I write about in the book is OXO, and they make kitchen products uh, and, and other things, and they're really cool-looking products. Um, one of the products I think is really neat that they make is something It's called an angled measuring cup, and some of your listeners may have used these or even have them in their kitchen. But, you know, they're measuring cups, and they have sort of a little shelf inside that's angled downwards so that as you're filling it with liquid, you can look into the measuring cup and know exactly how much you have in there. With the traditional kind of Pyrex measuring cup that people have in their kitchens, you, have, you fill it a little bit, you lift the cup up, you look at the side, you realize you put in too much, you tip a little bit out, and you get the amount you want. But what's interesting about OXO is they don't do much in the way of advertising, and actually they don't do much in the way of packaging they try and allow their products to speak for themselves. And so when you go to Bed Bath & Beyond or wherever it is you may buy that product, all of a sudden you look on the shelf and you see the product and you know exactly what it does. And it's because of the design. And so it's a really interesting thing where the design itself is carrying the marketing of the product. So I'd like to get your thoughts on where uh, consumers today influence the design of a product that they happen to like. Some companies embrace this concept. Others would never consider allowing a consumer to have influence over their product design. What are your thoughts on that? So it's a really interesting question. It's a really interesting question, and there are a couple of uh, things to think about. Uh, Consumers getting involved in the design of a product can be great. Uh, They have terrific insights. Um, So another company I write about extensively in the book is Lego. And there was a time a few years ago when Lego wanted to update its Mindstorms product, and that's the robotics product that it, it, it's created. And it, it was enormously popular when it came out in the first generation. It's time for Lego to update it. And so what they did is they actually reached out to their most hardcore robotics users. And these are adults, not kids, but adults who use these products. And they said, what would you like to see in the next one? And they actually invited them into the design process. Now, Lego didn't take every you know, uh, suggestion these folks had, but what it did do is it used these extreme users, these folks who know the product better than almost everyone, and it used their advice to help shape the next generation of the product. And the lesson in that is that the most hardcore users often can put into words what should be in a product in a way that the rest of us can't. Now, the danger is that most consumers don't really know what they want. Uh, and, and that may sound a little bit odd, But let's think about the iPhone for a second. I have one. I love it. It's a great phone. And trust me, there are a whole bunch of other people who love their iPhones, too. But if you flash backwards to the pre-iPhone era and you said to folks, help us figure out what the coolest new phone would be, I think you wouldn't find anyone who would have said, oh, we really want a touchscreen phone that can connect seamlessly up to the Internet so I can download any one of 250,000 applications to personalize my particular phone. And yet that's what Apple has given us. And they knew that that would be something that consumers would want, even though not a single consumer was specifically asking for that. That's a, that's a very good point. I, I'm wondering if timing has something to do with that, or is that really design? Is it, is it marketing? I think it's probably a combination of all those things, isn't it, Jay? I'm sure it is, yeah. And, and you know, I, I would say timing has less to do with it than the design and the marketing of it. You know, it, it was the right product at the right time, but that's a, you know, that's a little bit of an aphorism and, and maybe a little too simplistic. I, I think it came out at a good time for that product to come out, but it was really a great design that, that lured folks to that phone. 
You know, uh, as we wrap up this segment, uh, just another final question on OXO you mentioned. Uh, and by the way, great uh, case studies throughout the book. You feature, I think it's eight different companies and taking each company and showing where they innovate through design and so forth. You had a great example of OXO in their what's called their Good Grips staple remover. And it also had kind of, a, I guess, a consideration with regard to both price point as well as innovative design. Talk a little bit about that, Jay. Uh, yeah, you know, the, it, it's actually one of my favorite products. I have one, have one on my desk right here. <laughs> um, so most staple removers, everybody knows these kind of two-fanged removers that you clip on the staple to, to pull out. And everybody knows that when you do that, you're going to rip some of the paper. All right, so it's a pet peeve. Most people just deal with it because that's what we got. Uh, OXO's whole business is about finding those pet peeves and trying to, trying to solve them. And so it worked at trying to figure out a staple room, find, figure out how to create a staple remover that would remove those staples without tearing the paper. And it tinkered with a whole bunch of different designs, and a few of them didn't work. Some of them came close and didn't work. And they finally came up with one that is, I think it's a pretty cool product. Uh, it almost looks like a letter opener, but it's, it's a, a maybe two or three inch piece of metal that tapers gradually outward and gradually thicker, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is you stick it under the staple, and it, as you push it under the staple, the staple bends outward and upward and then pops out of the paper. The paper doesn't ever rip. It's, it's a really fascinating and, and innovative design. But here's the interesting thing. It sells for about three times as much as those regular staple removers that tear your paper, and you know what? People are buying them. It's one of the best-selling products that uh, OXO has in its office business line, uh, and it's doing well because, again, design is how it works. It's a new mousetrap here, isn't it? It's uh, Jay Green here with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth on the Advertising Show. Design is how it works. JayGreen.com, by the way, is Jay's website, and we'll talk more with Jay here in just a moment on the Advertising Show, being powered by Shipple.com. Shipple is an incredibly powerful marketing tool as it relates to your web presence uh, through a platform called Tendency, and they've got a whole bunch of other stuff out there as well that are it's killer. Check it out. It's S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com. Ray and Brad back with more with uh, Jay Green. Welcome back to the Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. And this is important to us, really, relate to uh, uh, Jay Green's website. It, is, it has an E on the end, okay? So it's just not G-R-E-E-N. It's G-R-E-E-N-E. Uh, he paid the extra price and got the extra E. I think it's a wonderful idea. And from a design standpoint, I guess it makes sense, doesn't it, Jay? There you go. And now you can even add that Jay is actually J-A-Y, just so that we don't confuse anyone out there. That's true, and WWW is exactly what it means, too, as well. Exactly right. There you go. Welcome back to the show. Thanks. And by the way, Jay has a type A blood, just in case anyone was wondering. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's uh, <laughs> you know, Jay, I think a lot of people think of design mostly in physical terms, uh, yet I'm curious, is it possible for a product to look bad yet work well enough to save it? Oh, absolutely. And, and again, you know, I mentioned the Cliff Bar thing, right? I mean, you know, Cliff Bar is a product that doesn't look particularly good, but it works terrific. It, they, they actually do 
exactly what the athletes who use those products want them to do. Or another way you even think about this is let's think about services, right? I mean, there are companies that design services that have no appearance at all. Um, you know, one of the ones I use in the book is Virgin Atlantic, right? They design air travel. Um, and folks love it. And think about that for a second. In this era when people hate flying mm-hmm. and, you know, airlines are pilloried for charging, you know, flyers to rent a pillow or, uh, eat, you know, they give terrible food. People love flying on Virgin Atlantic, and it's because they design a service that yeah. customers really crave. And they do it with, with whimsy and with charm. I mean, you know, they do everything from creating 14 different lighting settings uh, to create the right mood to even silly things like they have um, their cutlery is kind of amusing. Uh, they, they have a, the, the cheese knife that you get in first class when you find flying Virgin Atlantic. Hmm. And in it is etched the words finest stainless steel, and steel is spelled S-T-E-A-L. That's just <laughs> terrific marketing. You'd sit there and you think, well, do they want me to steal that thing? Yep. And the answer is yes. Nice. They want you to take it home, and then they want you to show it up to their friends. Yeah. And, it, you know, and, and they did it because they were losing these knives anyway. So they figured, roll with it. Let's have fun with it and maybe give folks, uh, you know, a, a, a sense of fun and a reason to, to laugh about all this stuff. I could just see somebody at Virgin Atlantic going, yeah, be sure and put the website on there so that people know where to go and, you know, when they find <laughs> it. Home, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, in your book, uh, Jay, you stress throughout your book that design isn't just about rebranding. I'm curious, do you think that most people in the corporate world confuse the two, rebranding and innovation, innovative design? Uh, yeah, and I would even take it a step farther and say I think most executives don't really get what design is. I think most executives think of design as being that sheen you put on at the end of the process. Um, and I think it's because... CEOs generally don't come up through design ranks. CEOs generally come up through finance ranks. And they're guys who understand balance sheets, and they understand benchmarking. And, and, you know, their training isn't in design. And design is is next to impossible to benchmark. It isn't something that CEOs are typically comfortable with. And so it's easier for them to just sort of say, yeah, it's about rebranding. Let's just do it that way. You know that that's interesting. Uh, how do you how does one uh, create a culture of innovation and design within the corporate environment? I would think that you know, it's design is something that I, a lot of uh, bean counters and certainly people out of the finance end of a company would would be hesitant to back because there's no metrics that that say okay, let's be innovative and run it through a test and know that if we put this kind of money into design that we're going to re- realize this kind of return on our investment. H- how do you create that kind of environment where design takes a, a forefront position within a corporate structure? It, and what you're saying is exactly right. And it, it is the big challenge in, in corporate America and really the other, other cultures as well to try and uh, get design to take hold or take root in a company. It really has to come from the top down in many ways. The CEOs have to accept that design is an important part of the process. And part of that means um, embracing risk. And CEOs love to say, oh, yeah, well, we take risks. Many of them don't. Um, risks often mean failure. And all of the companies I write in the book have had failures, and I, I, I mentioned some of them in the book. Um, failures, and, and when you fail, these companies, they don't, sweep it under the rug and say, oh, gosh, we failed. Let's be quiet about that. They actually celebrate it, and that may sound kind of funny, but companies talk about their failures so that they can learn from them, and then they, they actually 
talk about them widely. They talk about them to guys like me, to journalists who they wouldn't normally, you know, want people to write negative things about the company. But, you know, when a product fails, uh, there's, there's tons you can learn from it. And, comp- you know, executives have to be willing to accept those sorts of failures and give their employees the latitude to fail, because if they don't, they're never going to succeed in the big ways that design can allow them to. Yeah, just in the minute and a half we have left in this segment, uh, speaking of metrics and, and instincts and so forth, does tuition uh, trump market research when it comes to initially evaluating innovative design concepts, you think? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with market research, and market research can help you, particularly in terms of marketing the product. Um, in terms of developing the product, it's a bit harder, because as I said earlier, you know, c- consumers don't often know what they want. Um, and one of the biggest challenges for design at companies is what I call the prove-it culture. Um, often when uh, executives want to develop a product, their bosses will say, prove it. T- show me that this product will work. Well, you couldn't have asked Apple to prove that the iPhone was going to work because a touchscreen phone didn't exist at the time. You know, there are any number of products in here. I mean, I talk about OXO. OXO develops all the, you know, the staple remover. No one could prove that that product was going to be as successful as it was because it cost so much more than the other ones. Um, So intuition matters a lot in these businesses, and market research can't replace that. And with that said, go out and take a risk and buy the book. That's a good risk to take. Design is how it works. Jay Green is the author of the book. Jay, it has been a pleasure having you here at the Advertising Show today. Brad Ray, thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for stopping by the Advertising Show with Ray Shillings and Brad Forsythe. being brought to you by Advertising Age Magazine. Visit online at adage.com. Well, hope you enjoyed the show. Tell your friends. Theadvertisingshow.com is a great website to visit. Uh, throughout the week or any time for a lot of great interviews over the past 10 years of doing the show. So we invite you to do that as well. And, of course, always tell a friend about The Advertising Show, a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production, and we will talk to you again soon. Why do more media professionals read IWantMedia.com? IWantMedia.com features reports from industry leaders and media personalities. IWantMedia.com gives you quick access to news, stats, trade orgs, and industry publications, and it's updated daily. Forbes says IWantMedia.com contains everything media professionals need to stay ahead of the game. The Washington Post calls it the source for the serious media geek. Do you get it? If you don't, you should. To sign up for free daily email alerts, visit IWantMedia.com.